Okay, we have been in this really, for me, it's been uh, kind of eye-opening, pretty fun uh, as, as far as a deep dive goes into uh, the book of Ephesians. If you have some notes, I'm going to jot this down with you because this is the one, of the one of the most transcendent passages that I think we're going to deal with today uh, in Ephesians chapter 6. So open up your Bibles, fire up your phones, whatever you need to do, you're going to want to like, like inch your way through this with us today, but I would encourage you to maybe jot down a few notes. Uh, but let me start out by saying this. Um, I, like many people, as in like billions of people, um, flirt and kind of try and get familiar with social media. Um, the way I tried to explain it to my mom, who's, uh, you know, in her late 70s, she loves getting messages. She's the one that loves, she's always been a great letter writer because she loves getting mail. And so when I was trying to help her understand social media, particularly Facebook, uh, I was like, Mom, think about it this way. It's like, it's like getting Christmas cards, like, uh, but you get them all, all the time. You can check like, how everyone's doing that you never keep in touch with, but you just get to stay current in what people's doing. You don't even have to wait till December. She's like, well, I want to be on the Facebook. And I said, well, Mom, let's open you up an account. Um, but here's the thing that I'm learning. And if you don't have teenagers or 20-somethings in your house, there is this whole unseen realm that you're actually um, embarrassing yourself. And so what I'm learning about is that in social media, first of all, if you think of social media as Facebook, you're old. Uh, because uh, there are these things that are happening that I do all the time. I don't post correctly. I'm not a good editor of pictures. I have embarrassing hashtags. I have pictures that are posted that don't have enough likes and I haven't removed them because somehow socially that's unacceptable to have less than 50 likes or in some cases 200 likes. Uh, and I go, well, I don't have that many friends. Uh, but there's all of these things that are happening within social media and then there's this unseen realm of etiquette and protocol. She's like, oh dad, you can't do that. You can't leave that up. And I just feel sorry for all of you who don't have someone to tell you that you're embarrassing yourself. Uh, and so Annika has become sort of our unofficial um, uh, social media director for Mission Hills because she's attached her name to Mission Hills and we have to live kind of in the light. Uh, but what I realize about social media is that it feels like spiritual warfare. And there is this unseen realm that is at work. There's this unseen reality. And I didn't know those were the rules, but somehow there's forces working against me. And just when I'm thinking I'm being fun and cool and, and, and connecting with community, I'm doing a lot wrong. That sets up what Paul wants to talk about in Ephesians chapter 6. And he actually gives us the wherewithal to live not with like appropriate social media etiquette but to overcome and actually live like Christian victorious living. So this is what I want to do as we open up in Ephesians chapter 6, is begin to understand what he's doing. Now, here's, let me, so this is what we're talking about, spiritual warfare. Now, this, this is like loaded, but I want to say it this way. A lot of times when we hear the idea about spiritual warfare, we think of it in terms of very overt terms. We think of it as like the exorcism. We think about it like Ghostbusters where someone's like occupied them. We think about it as casting out demons and binding and loosing. And it gets down this really charismatic road of confusion and sensationalism. And, and I'm not saying none of that is real. I think that there are things at play and at work, but let me just talk to you 
about the reality of our lives in our context and talk about spiritual warfare in what I think are more covert ways, more subtle ways, but equally as divisive, equally as dark, and equally uh, as subversive. Um, and so that's why it's really important for us to begin to unpack some of the ways that the evil forces, the demonic realm, actually operates. And this passage is, is supposed to help us get to that. Now, let me read a quote. Uh, and it's a quote from this, uh, it's the power of positive leadership. And, and, and he says, we all have a job to do, and we all do that job, whether intentionally or unintentionally. And the job that we all possess is we are all, in every setting, in every context, culture builders. Listen to what he says. Most important job is to drive culture. Culture drives expectation and belief, and belief drives behavior. Behavior, then, creates habit. And habits create the future. Let me just kind of go through that. He says, the most important job is to drive culture because culture drives our expectations and our beliefs. And the beliefs that we have, because what is belief without an action? Belief drives our behavior. And what he's saying is, based on our behaviors, that creates our habits. And so we are all culture creators. Whether you're new, whether you're the new hire, whether you feel like you've got the least amount of influence or pull at your work, whether you're the youngest child in the family, you are a culture creator because we all have influence. Whether you're new, whether you're young, whether you're smart, whether you're, you're whatever. We all create culture and that starts with the condition of our own hearts. Um, culture and family. Culture among friendships. Culture in a tribe. Culture in a church. Culture in a city culture in neighborhoods. I mean, we have cultures. Westlake's got a culture. South Austin's got a culture. East Austin's got a culture. Northwest Hills has got a culture. Everywhere's got a culture. And you, you drive in different neighborhoods and you decide, I, I like how it feels here. This kind of feels like me. Uh, and then you drive to other areas or you visit other towns and you're like, got a weird vibe there. That, those are not my people. Uh, and so we, we kind of have this intuitive sense over culture. Uh, but assuming, though, that we're purposeful, um, whenever we set out to create culture, you have to understand this in the spiritual realm. If you have good intention to set out good habits that create, you know, kind of a behavior that creates habits, and you're trying to do kind of create this Christian culture, whether it be in your own heart, in your own marriage, in your own family, understand this. You will always experience profound opposition. It will always be opposed. So when we give ourselves to building a Christian culture, there will be an enemy not idly standing by, but actively at work. And so um, this is why Paul writes this whole book. It's six chapters, and he takes chapters one through three, and he talks about the gospel story and our life in light of this new identity and that we're given all the resources to live in this new humanity called Christianity. And it says beyond being a Gentile, uh, beyond being like 
male or female, slave or free, you can live in light of who Christ is in you. And then he gets to, therefore, four through six, or four through five, this is how you ought to live. And he gets very directive in the kind of ways you should conduct yourselves, maybe in marriage or uh, ethically or morally. And he gets very pointed about that. But then he gets to chapter six. And he, and he talks about, and here's how you can actually live that way victoriously. Here's how you can actually overcome. And so the, the final words to the Ephesians is about how we can actually move and grow. And I think most of us know this. If you have a desire to walk differently in a manner worthy of the calling, any intent will be contested mightily. And so my outline tonight is answering three simple questions. Um, and, and that is, you know, in the whole series I've called, we choose to, to zag because when the world zigs, what we're trying to do is zag. We're trying to live counterculturally. We're actually trying to live un-American because if Americans are known as consumers, you cannot be a disciple and just simply consume Christianity at your leisure, at your convenience. Christianity involves a simple, not a simple, um, simply but hard dying to self. And so what I want to just outline is what is it uh, that God uh, wants and what is it that we can actually expect and then how should or how can we live? And so the first part of this comes to us just simply in verse 10 and it's answering the question, what is it that God wants? And he says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. So Paul prays for strength because good intentions are never enough. How many have ever gone on a diet with really good intentions? How many have ever gone, like, committed themselves to a workout routine with the best of intentions, created a New Year's resolution with the best of intentions, and it was short-lived? Paul's writing is, it doesn't matter how much you, like, oh, I just want to live a better and more Christian life. He's like, good intentions only get you so far. There has to be something more that we do. And so, again, in John 10, 10, John, uh, he's quoting Jesus. He says, the thief comes to steal, to kill, and destroy, but I have come to give life or abundant life. And the important thing to see about this kind of language is that when he's talking about life, he's not talking about bios, the study of life, like generic bios. He's talking about zoe which is this idea of spiritual fullness. I came to not let you get by. I came to not let you just get a participation award for showing up. I came so that you can actually live, overcome, and be victorious. And that's what he's painting a picture from. And so what is it that God wants? Boldness. Not quiet anonymity, not being a jerk for Jesus either, but what he's saying is be strong in the Lord. You don't have to be a loudmouth for Jesus, but you do need to be strong in terms of your new identity. And my concern with the way as Americans, and, and this is actually what I would consider one of the things that is plaguing or spiritually oppressing the American church, is this idea of what we've built church up to be as this great participation award. I showed up, I got here as if it was a huge achievement. And I'm saying, that's a good starting place. 
But if all you do to measure Christianity is church attendance, then you will succumb to this, this, this downward spiral of a darkening heart. And, and if you say, I want to live victoriously, I want to overcome, there's things that I want to live into. I battle self-worth. I have self-image issues. I, I battle addiction. I am just growing complicit in my, in my um, unforgiveness. I'm growing comfortable with my resentment. What we're doing is we're becoming complicit to the culture around us. And he's saying, you are a new creation in Christ and you actually can live differently. We're not even talking about exorcism here. We're not even talking about casting out demons. We're simply talking about if you have any inkling, any desire to live into the light of this new identity, there is going to be opposition. And my concern is that we've just, we've dumbed down church to feel like it's our favorite restaurant. Well, is there good atmosphere? Um, is the music too loud? Um, oh, they have a nice menu. There's, there's a lot of things. Oh, there's good kids menu and the kids like it when we go there too. And uh, there's good, there's, there's easy parking and there's convenient times. And I'm like, are we talking about our favorite restaurant or are we talking about the church of the week? And we've made church out to be about these programs and these menus to somehow be like a department store that has something for everyone. And my point is this, none of those are wrong, but all of those things keep us stuck. Because if all we do is come and consume without actually practicing a living faith, we can't, we can't grow. It's like setting out to diet, but not actually punting on ice cream after nine o'clock. It, it's just not going to happen. Good intentions, just participation, just showing up isn't enough. We have to understand that it requires effort. And so, oh, I know, let's start a church based on rhythms spiritual expressions that we just agree together and we're just going to practice them and everything that we plan and put on the calendar is it can be identified with a certain spiritual expression man mission hills is so hard to be a part of it makes so much effort mm -hmm. yeah because could we stop seeing like the gym as like or, or like the church we need to start seeing the church as like a gym membership and called into spiritual fitness not convenience this is the life that you're invited into. So imagine Paul writing to this church in Ephesus. They're living in like as the minority culture in light of one of the seven wonders of the, of the ancient world called the, the goddess, Art, or what we would know as Diana. It was the goddess, uh, you know, where, where Wonder Woman comes from, okay? Let me just make it real pop culture. This is Artemis. This, this is where it was, the Greek goddess Artemis. And, and so they were living in this culture and the whole industry was built under sculptures and statues and paintings. And so there's this whole industry built to just serving this predominant prevailing religion. And Paul's saying, listen, you guys are the minority ones, not because you're not like, we're Jews, but it's for everyone. You're Gentile and you're not buying into this Artemis thing. And it's okay, and oh, but you might lose out on some job opportunities because, well, you're not going on. Well, it was so countercultural, is my point. And so he's trying to say you have to live differently than the culture around you. And so then he goes on, and he's talking about. So we have to ask ourselves that question: What then does movement look like? If we say we have good intentions and we want to create some good habits, what is it that movement looks like? Um, and, and I would simply say, say, we can't coast. 
one of the things I tell my parents who are in their late 70s, early 80s, there is no retirement in the kingdom of God. You guys have lived too long together, too much faithfulness, too much experience. You can't unexperience what you've experienced in Christ. You can't unlearn what you've learned in Christ. And if you just go to your mega church and get lost in a crowd, you are grieving the heart of God and you guys are already in decline. Okay, this is like father-son talk, like, but in reverse, right? I'm like, you guys, don't sit on the sidelines. Don't do it. You've got, it, it would be akin to, not me, but like if you're my son who can hit 300-yard drives on a par five, and then you get out to your bar and you're just so amazed at your drive, you're like, this is awesome. I'm going to pull out a chair and pitch a tent because I just, it's so awesome. No, it's like settling and getting to the 34-yard line desired. You know, it's a lot of work to keep pushing forward. I have to actually break a sweat. It's like, no, no, movement is required. Don't coast, don't settle. And some of us have made strides. There's been areas of your life that you've grown in. And I think one of the most paralyzing things is to go, yeah, but if you knew me then, I'm good. Or if you look around and you go, I'm better than those jokers. I mean, if you saw how they live, if you saw how they parent, I'm like, don't get paralyzed by who's around you. God has invited each of us into this journey of faith. So don't settle, don't coast. In fact, um, in Ephesians chapter one, uh, you might remember reading this. He says, he made known to us, this is Ephesians one, verse nine and 10. He made known to us the mystery of his will in his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. Why? To put into effect when the time reaches their fulfillment to bring unity of all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In other words, every molecule in the universe saturated with the glory of God. This living vibration of joy and healing and mercy and generosity. You and I are supposed to be the prequel to what God's going to do at the end of all things. We cannot settle. There's more to do. There's more to be done. And it starts with how we build the culture of our own hearts and then how we build the culture of our homes and our faith community. There has to be a culture that we are in this together. And we'll see that because he gets into battle, what it means to go into battle. And you'd never go into battle alone. Even the way they would wear their armor had to do with going into battle together. Uh, but there's such a great picture. I've never thought of myself as the prequel to the end of times. But God, because we've all experienced heaven on earth. I go to Dr. Hassler's office this weekend. It's just a glimpse of what it's like where things are being made right. Where someone who doesn't have health care or health coverage. Where people are being, like Sam, the last time I we went there, she got this terrible government-funded dental care and they removed her teeth, for God's sake. And, and, and here we get to have these moments where it's being put back together. We all have this taste of what it's going to be like, this, this little glimpse of what it's going to be like, but we're just the prequel to what God is doing in the restoration of all things in Christ. So what can we expect then? What does God want? He wants boldness. He wants us to live with like some kind of strength, be strong in the Lord. So then the question is, what can we expect? And it's, it's the obvious opposition. If you set out to do something, it won't come easy. And so he says these words in, in verse 11 uh, through 13. Put on then the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Uh, what's interesting about that word is uh, the schemes is the Greek word uh, methodia, which simply means strategies. 
The devil, diabolos, means lie, slander. So, what can we expect? Methods or schemes that will distort the truth and cause us to be slandered or to be deceived. Guaranteed. Why is it that you get discouraged? Why is it that you take the scenic route? Why is it that we take detours? Because we succumb to the evil schemes. Man, I was just going this way and then like this happened and then this happened and then I forgot how I got here, but I'm here now. You're like, it just goes that way because it starts out as it's not bad and then it becomes full-blown addiction. It starts out as nothing serious and then it becomes full-blown something else. And so he's painting this picture for us that opposition is inevitable. And in some cases, the opposition is going to feel like suffering and persecution. But for most of us, the opposition that we might feel will feel like effort. It'll feel inconvenient. It will feel uncomfortable. Oh my gosh, it's... it's it, no, it feels like a priority. And a priority, if it's a priority, is like, yeah... I said I'm going to do this. Yeah, I said this was important. You know, when you think about it, though, uh, if the church is God's team, then you have to assume that there's an opposing team, right? Last week, we probably saw one of the best national championship basketball games, like, in recent history. I mean, two teams that weren't necessarily the ones you'd expect, except that I picked UVA to win it all. Uh, and so did Annika. And, um, and so, but that has nothing to do with what we're talking about tonight. <laughs> but we're a house divided because we currently have a student enrolled in Texas Tech University. Uh, and so mom wanted Tech, but man, what a game. What a game, right? I mean, like, that's what a championship should look like, even if that's who you didn't expect to be there. But here's the thing. A group of middle school girls basketball team could have won that game if the opposing team never showed up. You don't even have to like shoot a free throw. You could just shoot a layup, game's over, we won. So you have to understand that if the church is God's team, we have to understand that there's always going to be opposing team. So how then do we live um, in this tension, in the reality, whether it's overt or covert, whether it's like, feels like persecution or it feels like just undermining. We live, in, when we choose to live the Christian life, when we try to live into this new Christian identity, we will live with opposition and it will always feel countercultural. Uh, and so Paul's saying, be mindful, that if you're going to deal with an anger problem or a body image issue or how you comfort yourself or your insecurities, it will always be contested. He says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore... Put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything, to stand. Uh, and so what he does is, he, well, let me just say this. The devil cannot make a good person bad. But what the devil does is makes a flawed person worse. And oh, by the way, we're all flawed, therefore we're all extremely vulnerable to being lied to, to believing the deceit, to living beneath what I think is our spiritual inheritance. 
And so our calling then, whatever your day job is, stay-at-home mom, business, law, whatever the case may be, student, your purpose, your calling is to live as light and allow the light to shine through you to permeate dark places. We're not talking about like what you get compensated for. We're talking about living victoriously and being people of light. And so I would simply say the text tells us that the enemy is at work. Rulers, powers, principalities, dark. And, and these forces function primarily in two ways. One, I think they aff afflict us as individuals. And so I think individuals become afflicted with certain things, uh, and not all of it is spiritual. Some of it is psychological. Some of it is physical. But there are times where we can become oppressed to darkness. Um, and, and the enemy's been given access. Uh, listen, uh, whenever someone talks to me about their zodiac signs, I cringe. When someone's like, oh my gosh, I'm just a Scorpio. It's just who I am. I'm like, could you... Or, or, or tarot cards, or Ouija boards, or going into like any kind of astrology. And it's not that I think that's a bunch of BS. I think that that stuff is actually real. It's just counterfeit to the Holy Spirit. You can actually get guidance. You can actually get direction. But I promise you, it's a counterfeit spirit. So when you just say, oh, it's just fun to get with my group of girlfriends and we go and talk about our, I was like, fine, play with fire do coke in moderation or smoke a bowl of crack uh, but it will become an addiction the, like these things have consequences you know and, and so I think as individuals we open ourselves up to something that becomes a, so what be, begins as just I'm enjoying the fruit of the vine and then all of a sudden my appreciation for God's beauty and earth becomes man I just need a third glass of wine because the edge is already off but now I'm looking for escape you're like, how did I get there? I'd like a fourth because um, I don't trust God to be the God of comfort. So I'm going to comfort me. And, and so you see how we let ourselves become afflicted, right? Now, secondly, and this is going to sound mildly kind of outrageous or maybe even new or even confusing, but forces of darkness also control systems in our world. So they afflict us, afflict us as individuals, but they can also... Uh, inform systems in our world where do i get this from daniel chapter 10 i won't go into diving into that passage but i'll simply say this daniel was living in captivity he was a jewish man uh, who uh, israel had been conquered by the babylonians and he had been brought into the king's service and while in service like he he was like pro like given close proximity to the king and so he got all this language and training and arts and all this stuff but it says in Daniel chapter 10, he was a righteous man. He, he learned the language and the culture better than the Babylonians. And yet when push came to shove, he didn't bow a knee. And even though they were all worshiping another God, he refused. That's why you remember the story, Daniel and the lion's den, you're picturing this. Well, in Daniel chapter 10, he's now facing what feels like great opposition, at least on a physical realm. And he set out to pray, but he didn't get an immediate response. Does this sound like our prayer lives like all the time? And it says, finally, in this moment alone, the archangel Gabriel shows up and the archangel Gabriel says to him, don't be afraid, which I would need to go, like, thank you. That I would need some reassurance. Like, okay, don't be afraid. You who are highly esteemed, 
from the very first day you sought and turned your heart to pray, the Lord on high heard your cry, but, here's this, for 21 days, three weeks, I was initially released from heaven, but for 21 days, the prince of Persia kept me. I was in some kind of spiritual battle. Wait a second. So there's this heavenly battle between demons and angels actually playing. Mm -hmm. There is powers, principalities, and darkness that we cannot see. And he says, From, for 21 days, I've been battling, but now I'm here. And then he goes on to address the prayer that he prayed three weeks ago. Now, if you think about that, the prince of Persia. So, okay, whatever was happening, there was a geographic or a system in play in which there was a prince over a palate. There was a spiritual darkness oppressing a particular area. And this starts to make sense. I would argue that if you go um, and think about what's going on in our world today, there are oppressive spirits, territorial spirits, or who are afflicted particular areas. Give you some examples, and you don't even have to agree with me. I just believe more than my rational mind can comprehend, but there are things that are just not right. I was reading this week, how many of you know about Thailand? What do you think about when you think of what is one of the major things going on in Thailand? Human trafficking. You know what the consu I'm getting so angry. I read this article this week where what's going on in Thailand, because they want to draw, it's a poor country, and they want to promote tourism, and they're known for human trafficking. You know what their new slogan is? Get off in Thailand. Hell no. Really? Get off in Thailand? That's, that's how you're promoting your tourism. How does Las Vegas promote tourism? What stays in Vegas, or what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas? Darkness. And you could argue there is a spirit of lust that is just plaguing. You could argue that there's a spirit of greed that's just settle in on that, and you become someone different. You start to feel the adrenaline, you start to get liquored up, and all of a sudden, I think darkness is at work. You could argue what was going on in the Deep South like in America, actually not even deep south, racism. It becomes, I think, what we call a spiritual stronghold. You could look at cities like New York and London, and you go, I think that there's a spirit of materialism that's going on there. You could look at Washington, D.C., and think about there's kind of this spirit of greed. You could look and make a case for what we call or what we understand spiritually as strongholds princes over paladies that have claimed authority over areas and it's incumbent it's dependent on the, the people of God to walk into dark places and to let light permeate through are all places gone no but are all places falling yes so we get to be a part of God's salvation and so we have this picture that starts to get played out in every city, every country, every system has a culture with a potential to either be redemptive or destructive. But every culture is always going to be a blend. And we have to live within that tension with discernment and be able to say, how do we need to bring light? How do we need to live counterculturally to this as Christ followers? And so I think throughout the ages, God's people have been some of the most transformational agents. Um, 
Christians and churches have been largely responsible for the end of slavery. Uh, Christians and churches have been responsible for a growth of hospitals across the world, leprosoriums, halfway houses, thrift stores, wells in Africa, prison reform, um, the addiction and recovery, immigrant care, all by the church. But is the church also flawed? Yes, yes. And we're also complicit. The church has been largely at fault or even part of the problem when it comes to issues of anti-Semitism and environmental degradation and sexism and racism. There's people standing up and using scripture to justify slavery. Church is also complicit. But here's the thing. Uh, when we have a blind spot, and, and we usually don't know we have a blind spot, that's why it's blind spot, but when we have a blind spot, it means that we've made peace with our complacency, and now we're beginning to operate outside of the light. And so the question is, is how have you and I, how have we made peace with our addiction? How have you made peace with your resentment? How have you made peace with your abuse? Have you just settled? Have you just gotten so familiar with that woundedness with that vice, with that coping skill, and said, just settle. And what Paul's saying to them, to us, walk into this new identity. There's a new way to be human, but don't be complicit in the darkness. Don't say yes to darkness because Christ lives. This is, this is what makes next Sunday so beautiful. And the way to deal with it then is to put on the armor. How should we live? And, and I, he would simply say, live every day like it's a spiritual contest, but understand that we have the resources. So then he says, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, uh, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes with the gospel of peace. He paints this picture for this whole heavenly armor. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, those little darts, those fiery lies that you start to believe about your self-worth, uh, about the, that you're losing, about like your regrets. Those are fiery darts. Take up the helmet of salvation and the, and, the, uh, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. And with this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. What he's saying is, Paul reminds us that the reality of spiritual evil in the world to undermine our unity and your identity in Christ uh, and, and so he invites us to form these new practices to live the Christian life. And so he's like, belt of truth. Have you ever gone out, and I know this is maybe more of a male thing than a female thing, but there are times where I'll occasionally leave house uh, and I have a baggy pair of pants and I forget my belt. And I've got a case of the sags all day and I'm always pulling up my drawers. And, and it just, it's so annoying. But imagine going into battle and getting caught with your guard down because you can't keep your pants on. And so this funny picture plays out, go with the belt of truth. Like you don't even have to think about it. You're so rooted in God's truth, not the world's reality. That, okay, that, that starts to make sense. And so what sustains you through your confusion? What gets you through your doubts? What gets you through your crisis? And he's saying, like, okay, where do you find truth? Horoscopes? Oprah? Come on now. Where, where are you finding your truth? Live in the moment. Like, like worst advice ever. 
Seriously, have a game plan. And it shouldn't be just be in the moment, right? Uh, don't give us. Um, bre- breastplate of righteousness. Now, here's where it's really interesting. When you went into battle, there was no rear guard. You would only have a breastplate to guard your heart. But the idea was you were always going to be vulnerable in your backside. But if you stood shoulder to shoulder, i.e. in community, then you were going to be protected. So he says, guard your heart. So then the question becomes, what is it that we are doing to protect us, our hearts? And he says, community is needed. We need to be standing side by side, shoulder to shoulder. And that's why I make such a big deal that church can't just be this event that we show up to and anonymously come to and leave. Please do something else for your church experience so that we're actively current in each other's lives. Oh, how are you doing? I remember you told me last week or last week you prayed we prayed for you for this or and and all of a sudden we know the struggles feet fitted with the readiness see in battle you don't want to be concerned how where you might step or stumble on how prepared are you to run away from temptation if if you've ever babysat if you've ever had kids and you see them with a shoelace that's untied I have like this pathological like everything needs to stop and that shoe needs to get tied why because they're going to trip. And he's saying, as your pastor, I'm seeing a bunch of you run out of here with your shoes untied. And I'm like, you are not ready for battle. And so what we talk about in here is how do we respond? And the, the, the larger word is repentance. But how do we renew our hearts? How are we sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit to turn? Turn away from sin turn away from temptation, turn towards the divine affirmation that reminds us of our worth and our adequacy. You, David, are my son in whom I love. With you, I'm well pleased. Okay, that doesn't sound like something the world would say to me. But I'm a new creation. I'm a, a new identity. Your shoes tied? Because we're, we're, you're going into battle, right? Shield of faith, the fiery darts. What do you use to protect yourself? The helmet of salvation, winning the battle for your mind. Um, Uh, and then the sword of the spirit now this is what's interesting the sword here is the only offensive weapon everything else feels mildly defensive or just simply being ready but then we're given this weapon that says we can fight back now can I just say a couple of things about this weapon this offensive weapon a lot of times people have held the sword of the Lord as a weapon like a battle weapon and it's like can bludgeon someone and so we've heard scripture used in such a way that feels not life-giving but more like guilt tripping not life-giving but sort of crammed down your throat and there was anything but joy to which I would say I think the better picture of the sword of the Lord isn't something that you would use in battle but maybe like a scalpel with precision because in the right hands it can be used to bring healing come on now The sword of the Lord is something that you need to have hidden in your hearts so that when you encounter temptation, when you encounter the enemy, when you encounter doubts and fears and opposition and you live with this chronic insecurity, what truth are you walking in and what truth are you pulling out? And he's saying, no, dive deeply into the sword that is God's word. So here's what I want to do. I want to just close our time. We're running a little long tonight, but we want to just close and pray uh, the Lord's Prayer together because when we pray these words, your kingdom come, your will be done, what we're really saying is, is we're bowing our hearts, we're bowing our will and saying, not my will be done, but yours, Lord.
And that is more than a prayer of words, but that is a posture of a heart. And it's a truth we need to uh, live into. So let's just close with uh, this time as we pray. Uh, We can bow our hearts, but let's just pray together. Would you pray this with me? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day daily bread. This is our sins. And we forgive those who have sinned against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Let's just sit on that for a moment. Not your will, not my will, but your will be done. on earth as it is in heaven. Our Father, we know that we're battling a spiritual battle. It's a battle for the will, and we need to die to it, but we want to find new life in you. We want our hope. We want to be people of generosity and hope and hospitality, and we want to actually exist for one another. We want to exist for the margins. So we want to say yes to your kingdom come, your will be done in our hearts, in our families, in our homes, in our friendships, in our tribes, in all across Austin. Your kingdom come. So we pray for this second offering. Enliven our hearts, open our ears, open our eyes to the needs among us as we give back uh, just simple ways that we've been able to save money, we, we just want to say, Lord, help us leverage your kingdom on earth. Pray this in Jesus' name. So I'm just going to invite uh, our ushers to do a second offering. And if you have um, kind of kept a running total, if you've kept uh, maybe, uh, what, however you've done um, our new normal experiment over the last month, and if you want to kind of contribute that, we're going to be gathering that up. And then um, next Sunday, we'll be able to announce that. If you don't have that receipt tonight, uh, just kind of let us know, let me know, and then you can turn it in. You can go online, uh, and then we'll do that. So let's worship together.